Open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Our focus this morning will be on Galatians 5, 26 through 6, 5. I'll be reading 5, 13 through 6, 10. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified with have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one... For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive us of our pride. Forgive us of the arrogance 
of making church your church to be all about ourselves. So grant repentance and grant grace now because the kind of love that's commended to us here can only come as a result of your gospel and your spirit and your grace. This is impossible otherwise. If we try it in the flesh, it will result in pride, which will result in the destruction of all of this. And so we look to you now. We ask this for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you don't have the gospel, you can't have the Spirit. And if you don't have the Spirit, you can't have love. Paul begins this letter with the gospel indicative declaration of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then it's followed with the imperative of Spirit-empowered, freedom-based love toward one another. We receive that Spirit which is, empowers us in that love by hearing the Gospel with faith. 3 and verse 3. And so now it's by the Spirit which we've received in connection with the gospel, that we walk, and the walk that we walk is one of love. What does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? It does not mean coming to the law as an arrogant slave, thinking you can somehow merit your freedom, but coming rather as humble sons dependent on your Father, responding in gratitude and love, wanting to please Him in obedience in the power of the Spirit. The first fruit of the, the aspect, rather, of the fruit of the Spirit that we see is telling. Love. It's love that is, 5 and 14, the fulfilling of the law. If we are led by the Spirit, love of our brothers, particularly within the local church, is where we will end up because that is where the Spirit leads. John Stott writes, The first and great evidence of our walking by the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit is not some private mystical experience of our own, but our practical relationship of love with other people. And so here Paul is again continuing to expound on that freedom that we have. And this freedom is one of a life lived in dependence on the Spirit as obedience unto God expressed as love to our neighbor. And here in particular, we're given five commands, five intricately related commands that all draw upon the language of 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We are freed to, by the Spirit, serve one another through love. You are free to slave for your brother. 
And in contrast to that commended humility, now you have this forbidden pride. Let us not become conceited. Pride is a failure to keep in step with the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit includes love, kindness, gentleness. Pride grows the opposite direction. Pride is a rotten onion. We're after the sweet fruit of the Spirit, not the rotten vegetables of the flesh. Also, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. If there's pride, it's a lie. It's striking that Paul uses a word not that simply means pride, but it means empty pride, baseless pride. There's nothing to it. There's no reason for the pride. The King James gets at it well with the translation, vain glory. It's not just self-confidence. It's self-confidence without any basis, any reasoning. Pride is never then private, you see. Personal pride is a public sin. Pride is social. You cannot send the sin of pride unto yourself, and because pride is at the root of every sin, it's simply to say you can't sin unto yourself. We are limbs which, when bent in on self, lash out at others. John Stott deduces that our conduct toward others is determined by our opinion of ourselves. If you're big on self, you will be small on others. And there are two possibilities here as to how our pride could express itself. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now this is really illuminating and it's a helpful corrective to how we normally think of pride. Because it can come not only in the strong variety, but what John Piper refers to as weak pride. Whenever pride feels superior, it provokes. Whenever pride feels inferior, it envies. Pride can walk around with an upturned nose provoking its neighbor, or with downturned eyes envying one's neighbor. As a wounded horse is still a horse, wounded pride is still pride. It takes more than felt shame to turn pride into humility. It is not wounded pride that will serve through love. Something more is needed. And so the opposite, you see, of conceit is not self-contempt. But rather, I think what we see as we look at the whole of this passage is a kind of contrite confidence. Contrite confidence. Humility means we bow our head before our Creator. But then we lift it up, not with upturned noses, but we do lift up our head. We were once slaves bound in sin under the law. But by God's sovereign and effectual grace, 
We who are slaves are in the Son made sons. And now in our freedom, we walk by the Spirit seeking to love our brothers and sisters. And so our confidence then is not one that we have in ourselves, but it's a confidence in our Christ as to our position before our God. And if we have confidence in Christ, if we're enamored with Christ and who we are in Him, this is what it will look like. Philippians 2, 1-8. through 8, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And you notice that the idea is there, he doesn't just simply think horribly about yourself. Self-contempt will not do. Think more highly of others than you do yourself. If you realize your position is that you are a son of God, then esteem your brother as a most dear child. Of God. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you see, it's from the position of freedom and assurance that we then, by the Spirit and dependence on God, serve our brothers. And if Jesus washed His disciples' feet, how can we not serve our brothers? And the next command comes with two qualifications, two prerequisites. And you shouldn't read this as if this will give you a pass. These are not exemptions that you ought to seek to claim. These are qualifications for which everyone should aim. If you don't fill the qualifications, take care of the situation. When a brother is caught in a trespass, he should be restored, and the one seeking to do so, to do so should be one, spiritual, and two, Gentle, and the spiritual person is simply the one who is walking by the Spirit. He's being led by the Spirit. He's keeping in step with the Spirit. It's everything that we've been looking at so far. What this means is that you don't have to be at spiritual maturity level 5 in order to reprove a brother. You just simply need to be in step with the Spirit. The most recent convert, as well as the most seasoned saint, the, the shiny Christian and the one with rich patina, are both equally qualified to reprove a brother caught in sin if they are walking by the Spirit. Indeed, the shiny one could be more qualified if he's walking by the Spirit whenever the one who is well-seasoned and perhaps even more mature in his walk, but has just simply 
fallen into a period of walking by the flesh, the younger one could be more qualified. Uh, John MacArthur gets at the, at the root here. It should be noted that whereas maturity is relative, depending on one's progression and growth, spirituality is an absolute reality that is unrelated to growth. At any point in the life of a Christian, from the moment of his salvation to his glorification, he is either spiritual, walking in the Spirit, or fleshly, walking in the deeds of the flesh. Maturity is the cumulative effect of times of spirituality. But any believer at any point in his growth toward Christ-likeness can be a spiritual believer who helps a sinful believer who has fallen to the flesh. Now as to gentleness, we've already seen that that is one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. So what he's saying then is that the qualifications you realize are one. Spiritual, gentle, they're really one. What he's saying is, you who are spiritual shouldn't lose your spirituality. Whenever you try to be religious, don't lose your religion. Just because a brother has sinned is no reason for you to. I think that's exactly what Paul's aiming at. A brother's fall is no reason for humility to get twisted into pride. The prideful man is eager to obey this command. But he isn't qualified. Someone once gave this satirical definition of a Christian. Christian, noun. One who believes the New Testament is a divinely inspired book, admirably suited to the spiritual needs of his brother. That's not the spirituality being called for here. Douglas Wilson writes, so if someone is overtaken in a fault, who should correct the fault? Paul first states what the qualifications are for the one undertaking the job of correcting another person. Correcting someone else is a high and scary office, and we should think about it in the same way that we think about jumping out of an airplane. Such a thing is dangerous and fraught with peril. Paul says the task is limited to those which are spiritual. This is the first bar. If someone is spiritual, then he is qualified. But if he is annoyed, bothered, irritated, angry, upset, ruffled, or any other synonym for those, you can, uh, for those that you can find on thesaurus.com, then he is w- the one person on the planet who is disqualified from saying anything whatsoever about that person's sin. What this means is that quite often, whenever you are most zealous to correct a brother, you are least qualified. Wilson again, stingingly applying it to parenting. Imagine that your kids are careening around the living room. You can correct them because you want them to grow up to be disciplined people who have respect for property and do not destroy things. If this is the case, you are correcting them for their sake. Or you might snap at them because you've got one nerve left and they are on it. You did not do that for them You did that for you. In that case, you are not teaching your children to refrain from careening around the living room. You are teaching them how to be selfish. You think you are teaching modesty and decorum in their deportment uh, in the living room, but what you're actually teaching them is how to snap at their kids. Likewise, in the church, whenever we try to correct in pride, problems are not solved, problems are multiplied. 
What you're seeing here is nothing more than the first step in church discipline and the attitude that needs to permeate it all the way through. Remember Jesus' instructions. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You notice that the aim of going to your brother was to gain him. Here, it's said to restore him. If anyone would restore him. The aim of of discipline, of correction, of reproof is restoration, not deconstruction. The aim is restoration, not deconstruction. If at any point you or the church as a whole bypasses the little hammer for the heavy sledge, or even you go past that and go straight for the industrial wrecking ball, you're doing it wrong. Pride has entered into the equation, and you will not restore your brother, you won't win your brother, you will provoke your brother. And this should give us all pause at this point. I hope you feel it. That this is all impossible without the Spirit. There's no way that it can happen without the Spirit. If we're to love one another, really love one another in the way that fulfills God's law, it will only happen in the power of the Spirit in the wake of the gospel. All these commands are intricately related, like I said, but this next one forms a pair with this. Rebuking your brother, uh, seeking to restore him, is paired with this other side of the equation. This is how you need to do it. You're spiritual, you're gentle, and this will go a long way to cultivating that spirit, is that you keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. If, if you ever go to a brother with, how could you? Or, I'd never do that. You know, neither yourself nor your neighbor. You're in no shape to give a helping hand up because you're about to fall down. 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Before you tell, you tell your brother that they've got pepper in their teeth, look in the mirror. And, and then whenever you see it there as well, it will flavor your correction this way. Brother, I just noticed that I had a big glob of pepper in my teeth. And if I'm honest, I notice it because I noticed it in you first. But I, I got it as well. And I'm dealing with it. You might want to get it out of your mouth as well. That will go a long way to promoting a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. Matthew 7 outlines the proper protocol. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. This is the part that no 
no one who really loves the first part of that text ever gets to. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we shouldn't let our brother walk around with the speck in his eye. But you shouldn't seek to remove it by putting him in danger of knocking him out with the two-by-four of pride that's sticking out of your own head. This isn't a command against all judgment. This is a command against hypocritical or pride-filled judgment. If you can't see your own sin, you have no business trying to remove your brothers. Pride blinds. Blind men have no business acting as eye surgeons. The sins that should be most visible to you are your own. So, on your sin radar, the biggest blips should be always on, on your sin radar, the biggest blip should always be in your immediate vicinity. If the blips are always out there, your radar is calibrated to the flesh and not the spirit. And the next command is to bear one another's burdens, 6 and verse 2. Only the spirit-led saint can do so. Pride, pride doesn't want to bow before God much less to shoulder a brother's burden. Luther said a Christian must have broad shoulders and husky bones to carry the flesh. That is the weakness of the brethren. And you think though, but should we cast our burdens on God? Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on Yahweh and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Yes, you should cast your burdens on God. But whenever your brother cast his burdens on God, you should also be willing to be God's answer to his prayer. When God communicates his grace to the saints, a great part of that grace is communicated through the saints. God's word and sacraments are the primary means of grace. You can't partake of the sacraments, not truly, not really, outside of the context of a local fellowship. And the optimal place to partake of the Word is within a local body. So if the Word and sacraments are the primary means of grace, the church is the place of grace. It is where those things are meant to function. Whenever Paul was comforted by God... He was comforted through the church. Listen to how he writes of it to the Corinthians. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, And not only by His coming, but also by the comfort with which He was comforted by you. As He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I should rejoice still more. Here's the avenue of God's comfort as it came to Paul. The Corinthians comforted Titus, who comforted Paul. And all of this was from God. Here's the way he unfolds the principle involved in that in the opening of that same letter. 2 Corinthians 1, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you presently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Such burden-bearing fulfills the law of Christ. Why that peculiar phrase, the law of Christ? It's certainly taking us back to 514, the fulfillment of the law being found in this one word, love your neighbor as yourself. But why now the law of Christ? And one reason I think is clear by the context, because the freedom in which we obey this command is in Christ. But I think more so, this is, this is rooted in, well, not more so, equally so. This is rooted in what Jesus said to His disciples in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now, what's new about that? Well, one is the example that Christ set. But more so not more so again, it's just equally so, is the context that that is assuming. A new commandment I give to you. That you, my church, love one another as I've loved you. You see how this puts a different power on the impetus. Not simply to love your neighbor, which we should do. But how much more? The saints. Because here's the command. Here's the law of Christ concerning love for your your brother. To love him as Jesus loved him. The basis Paul provides for this command, verse 3, is that if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Any pride, that you might be puffed up with, that you think gives you reason that you don't need to really serve your brother, is a delusion. If you think you're that big, God is here telling you you're not that big of a deal. In relation to spiritual gifts, Paul tells the Romans that each one is not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Anything that you have, anything you have. I don't care if you were born with it, or it's something that's been developed throughout your life, or it's something that you found just kind of in some supernatural way that that you didn't even recognize before until you became a part of the fellowship. Anything you have is a gift. And why is grace given? You are given grace to give grace. 
Paul elsewhere asks, and to the Corinthians again, what did you have, what do you have that you did not receive it? And if you've received it, why have you received it? So that we might build one another up in love. You remember whenever Jesus' disciples were arguing about who was the greatest? And he rebuked them saying, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. The person who is really something in the church is the one who is most like our Lord. And the one who is most like our Lord serves through love. In contrast to thinking you're something, Paul calls for each one to assess their own work, verse 4. Notice the progression that kind of leads to this command. The prideful man is eager to correct, but that will only provoke his brother. And so he's to keep watch over himself, testing his own work instead of scrutinizing his brothers first. Now we should evaluate ourselves, but we're too often running the wrong diagnostic tool. Using the wrong standard. Beating a five-year-old in a foot race does not qualify you for the Olympic trials. That's what we do, though, to puff ourselves up. We're using the wrong mirror, and as a result, pride is provoking and causing envy. We look in the mirror of Facebook and Instagram, and we pose. It's all a sham, but we pose to provoke others to envy. But then, in our feed, we stumble across someone doing it better than we. Their posturing is prettier than ours, and so... We envy. The standard is higher and it's true. Test your own work and hold it up to the mirror of the Word. Be a humble creator more than a proud critic. There are humble critics that serve in that way. But foremost, our Efforts should be to be humble creators rather than proud critics because it will not be the critics' stinging words that resonate most, but those who humbly told a good story full of truth using whatever tools are in their hand. Don't patrol Twitter as the heresy police. Whenever you encounter, whenever you stumble upon lies, false teaching, speak against them clearly, without apology, in love for your neighbor. But whenever you do so, ask, is the primary thrust of what I want to do always countering false teachers, or is it to present the blessed truth of the gospel?
what really thrills me. Now, whenever you test, note that it's the work that we're called to test. And this goes a long way to keeping us from going from self-inspection to morbid introspection. Wilson says that introspection is a counterproductive fight with a tar baby. If you wrestle with the depths of your soul, you will come out ugly and dirty every time. There is a pig down there. Elsewhere, he elaborates, the Word of God is given to us in order to enable us to see ourselves. When we examine our own hearts, there is much we cannot see. This is why introspection is not the route to self-knowledge, but confusion. The study of God's Word is the only proper way to come to a proper understanding of ourselves. And in order to see ourselves properly, we always have to hold up the mirror of the Word. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror for which for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. James 1, 23. Listen to how Lloyd-Jones, the doctor, uh, his diagnostic skills are unsurpassed in this kind of uh, regard. Listen to how he distinguishes the two and how he gets at the subtle pride that lays at root. We all agree that we should examine ourselves. But we also agree that introspection and morbidity are bad. But what is the difference between examining oneself and becoming introspective? I suggest that we cross the line from self-examination to introspection when in a sense we do nothing but examine ourselves. And when such self-examination becomes the main and chief end in our life. We are meant to examine ourselves periodically, but if we are always doing it, always, as it were, putting our soul on a plate and dissecting it, that is introspection. And if we are always talking to people about ourselves and our problems and troubles, and if we we are forever going to them with that kind of frown upon our face and saying, I am in great difficulty, it probably means we are all the time centered upon ourselves. That is introspection. And that, in turn, leads to the condition known as morbidity. Uh, I believe it was Luther that, yeah, he did. Luther spoke of of our sinful depravity as being turned in in ourselves. (laughs) And then we try to be spiritual by turning further in. And that's not the solution. Pride can find a way to pervert even this command. (laughs) Whenever it fails the test... Pride can find a way to pervert this command and still make it all about self. Whenever you go to the Word properly, the law will convict. And the sight of your holy God will bring contrition. But if you're looking at the Word of God properly, repentance is always coupled with faith. Because you will not only see the law, you will see the gospel of Christ. Because that's where the law is meant to go. If you're really reading it rightly, you'll see the Christ who fulfills it. Who's all your righteousness. And your head will be bowed before your creator. And it will also be lifted up by your father. And as the gospel did at our salvation, 
by the work of the Spirit, producing faith and repentance in us as a gift of God, we will receive that gift again and again as we come to the Word. Faith and repentance. And the result then, you see, of properly testing our work, verse 4, is boasting. Let each one test his own work, then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. How does that square with the thrust of this passage? How does that square with this book in which Paul exclaims, Far be it from me to boast, save in the cross of Christ. How does that go together? First consider what it would mean to boast in your neighbor. This is what the false teachers were doing. Right before he says, far be it from me to boast, save in the cross of Christ, Paul says, even those who are circumcised do not, keep them, do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. It's taking that and the book as a whole, I see two ways where it's possible that we might boast in our neighbor's works. One is by unhealthy comparison. Well, I'm doing better than them, so we pray like the, tax, the, the Pharisee looking at the tax collector, thinking we're righteous by the wrong standard. That's one. Or two, I think the one that's foremost in view here is that we judge our spirituality by how well we're correcting and sanctifying others. My arrogant Reproofs are really sanctifying my brother. My proud criticism is really producing humility in the church. What kind of boasting then could be harmonious with the thrust of this passage? I think there's a great answer because the same Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, for our boast is this. The testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. His boast was this testimony of his conscience that he behaved in a certain way and the, the, the force, the power behind that behavior was not worldly wisdom. You, you seeing the echoes here? It wasn't of the flesh. It was by grace. My boast is, at root, Paul is saying there, grace. The cross. The kind of boasting assumed here is one that looks honestly at our works and says, The only reason I loved is the Spirit. And the only reason I have the Spirit is because of the cross of Christ, the Christ of the cross. None of it fleshly, none of it really works. All of it by the Spirit. All of it of grace. I think this boasting here is 
something of the equivalent of enjoying the fruits of one's labors. Proverbs 14, 14 says, The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways, and the good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. It's not wrong for a, pri- uh, for a farmer to look in pride over a completed fence. With aching bones and sore muscles, expressing gratitude to his God for the energy to do something worthwhile. It's the difference between taking pride in your work and being proud because of your work. One is shot through with gratitude and humility, and the other is all of pride. The basis for doing this, for testing your own works, the, the grounds, the basis, seems to be yet again another contradiction. For each one will have to bear his own load. So are we to bear one another's burdens, or are we to bear our own load? Which is it? When you bear another's... One thing is, you notice the different words you have even in the English translation, which represents what we have in the original language. Load, burden. So Paul is telling us there's something different here. Whenever you do bear another's burden, the one thing you cannot bear for them is their responsibility. You can bear their burden. You cannot bear their responsibility before God. Jesus Christ is the only one that can bear another's responsibility for their sin. You can't do that. You you can bear their burden. You cannot bear their responsibility. And this means, regarding you, is you've got a responsibility. And you are responsible for it. No one else. It's yours. You can't give that away. You're responsible for it. You may help a brother and rebuke him, But you are not graded on how he responds. That's his responsibility. Inversely, if you rebuke a brother in pride and he repents in humility, his humility doesn't cancel out your pride. You're responsible for your own work. So test your own work and not your brother's. You test your own work and not your brother's. You see a brother in sin, you go and reprove him in a spirit of gentleness. But whenever it comes to testing, to, the, to putting things through the fire, test your own work because you will bear responsibility for your work. If, so if you're a fruit inspector and you're able to sniff out everyone's rot except your own, you don't understand who you're ultimately responsible for. Conclusion, to borrow a metaphor from Phil Riken, the fruit of the Spirit is not grown in a private garden. It's not grown in a secret garden. The fruit of the Spirit is grown in a community garden, and it's for you to test and others to eat. Your fruit is for you to test and others to meet, to eat. Test your fruit because you want to serve your brother in love. Test it. Not because of some prideful reason centered on self where you want to climb up the ladder. Now we're back to pride. Test your fruit because you want it to be sweet for others unto the glory of Christ. C.S. Lewis wrote, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that of course he's nobody. 
Perhaps all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who, really, who, who took a real interest in what you said to him. But if you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. He goes on. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step too. At least nothing, whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. So what does the humble man think on then? The answer is simple. Christ. And because... He dwells upon Christ, who so loved His church. Thinking and dwelling on Christ, He'll be empowered by the Spirit to genuinely, desirously love His brothers in Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, May we lose ourselves in contemplation of Christ and the church that He loved. May we think rightly of ourselves, yes, in humility, bowing before You. But even then, it will be because not we're so centered on self, but we're so centered on You that we see the depths of our sinfulness, but also the riches of Your grace and in freedom then we rise to by the Spirit serve You in gratitude and love and confidence, not in ourselves, but in the rich salvation of Your Son. Praise be to Your name. Send Your Spirit now to glorify His name in Your church. Amen.